Hello and thanks for downloading the Sound on Sound podcast. I'm Editor-in-Chief Paul White and with me, as usual, is Technical Editor Hugh Robjohns. Hello. We have a few more reader questions for you later on, but first of all, let's see what Hugh's been working on recently. Well, I've been doing some speaker reviews, uh, the PMC22 uh, and the the new Neumann um, KNH310, uh, which is a very nice little speaker. Uh, I've also been looking at Antelope's Orion 32, which is a 32-channel uh, A to D and D to A interface with a USB port um, and MADI and SPDIF, and it's remarkably good value for money, actually. Very impressed with that one. Uh, also, the Dangerous Music Source, which is, well, they call it a monitor controller, but it's really more of a monitor switcher. It it lacks some of the uh, facilities like sort of mono and dim and stuff that you'd expect on a normal monitor controller, but it's very cleverly engineered. It's got uh, separate engineer speaker outputs and um, artist headphone outputs and that kind of thing. Um, interesting device. And also some 500 series modules. Um, SSL have brought out... Um, a couple of 500 series modules which are derived from their X-Rack series, the, the 45 and the 418. Uh, in the uh, 500 series, they call them the 611 EQ and 611 Dynamics, and they're based on the on the standard SSL um, E-series strip EQ and, and Dynamics uh, modules, uh, and also a DAX Clarity preamp, uh, which is a 500 series version of their very well-known and very impressive mic preamp. So they'll all be coming up very soon. Uh, but anyway, Paul, what have you been up to then? What have you been playing with? Well, first off, of course, our Studio SOS book's just come back from the printers and they've done a really nice job on it. It's available via Focal Press and we've covered pretty much all the common problems that Hugh and I come across during our many years of Studio SOS and also things that we find in our Mix Rescue series. There are lots of case studies and photos of real reader studios and it's a good reference for problem solving or for improving your mixers. On the review side, I've had the usual mixed bag of things to look at, but I've been quite seriously impressed by Blackstar's ID Series digital amplifiers. These look to be ideal for the studio player and for the live performer, as they're sonically very versatile, and to my ears anyway, they capture the essence of a valve amplifier really well, but without all the uh, maintenance issues that go with valves. Their onboard effects are rather good too. But for the studio user, the inclusion of a speaker emulator and USB audio interface for recording and reamping is also quite a plus. We've got a full review coming up very soon, and I've got one in my studio which I just can't stop playing with. Another surprise came in the form of PSP's Springbox Spring Reverb plugin. I wasn't really expecting to get particularly excited about Spring Reverb, but this one actually sounds excellent, very three-dimensional, and it's adjustable enough to be used as a main mix reverb as an alternative to something like a plate. It even sounds good on drums, it's great on vocals, so give it a try. There's a, a free uh, trial download that you can have a go at before you purchase. The other very significant piece of software that came my way was the Oceanway plugin for the UAD platform. This uses advanced room and mic modelling to allow you to place your own voices or instruments in Oceanway's live spaces, where you can then use up to three mic pairs at a time with the choice of microphone types. The mic distance and balance can be varied, where the room modelling process even takes into account the polar pattern of the source instruments. There's a useful range of presets too, and they're based on actual recording setups used in Oceanway, so they're probably the best place to start. Anyway, now it's time to look at some of your questions. first one out of the bag says, now that we have so many great plugins, is there any advantage at all in buying analog outboard gear? Well, this is quite a contentious area. What do you think, Hugh? Well, I like analog outboard gear. There's some, some very nice things that do some, some very nice jobs and sound very nice. It depends on how much space you've got and how many 
uh, I.O. facilities you have on your interface and that kind of thing, I suppose from a practical point of view. Um, there's no need to go analog outboard anymore, I don't think. I think you can do most things pretty well within the, the digital domain inside the box these days. What's your view on it? Well, the jury's still out on whether analog sounds somehow more warm still than digital, although uh, emulations of analog warmth are getting better all the time. I think it's partly a convenience thing. Clients are used to you being able to recall a project in all its detail, whereas if you've got analog outboard gear, it's more difficult to exactly recall a session. There's also this business of um, the base end of some analog gear apparently sounding warmer and more rich than it does on the digital counterpart. And of course, if the digital plug-in is an emulation of a piece of analog gear, it can never actually be as good as the real thing. It's always chasing it. Yep, very true. Um, you're never going to get it 100% right, are you? It's always going to be slightly different. But then actually, if you get two analog boxes, they're always slightly different to each other anyway because of normal tolerances. So it's whether it does the job you want it to do rather than whether it actually accurately emulates something, I think, probably. I think that's probably true. A lot of people get really hung up on the gear and... More of it is about what you record in the first place and how you arrange it and the room in which you record it. Everything else becomes less and less uh, important as you go through, I think. Mm, yeah, quite agree. OK, the next one says monitoring. If my interface has got an output level control, is there any reason why I should buy an analogue monitor controller? Uh, interesting question. Uh, I'd probably say yes, because I've come across too many situations where the computer's gone a bit mad, locked up, you know, generated full-level white noise or something like that, and uh, if the computer's locked up, you, you can't get into the interface to um, to turn the level down. So just having an analog level control that you can reach out and grab and, and turn down saves the speakers and saves your ears. And I just feel it gives you that extra stage of control which is worth having. And, and the other thing is that most active loudspeakers, the gain controls are hidden away on the back where you can't easily get at them. So again, having something at the front that's you know on the desk and easy to reach is, is an advantage. Um, from a quality point of view, actually, it doesn't make any difference, really. Um, if you turn down an analog controller, then you're reducing the signal-to-noise ratio in exactly the same way as if you turn it down in a digital controller. So there's no real technical advantage from that point of view. But surely if you're turning down a digital controller by a significant amount, you're using fewer bits to represent the waveform. So strictly speaking, it's going to be slightly more distorted than if you were running the interface at its full level and then using no, analogue to it, knock it down. It shouldn't be more distorted, um, but the, the signal-to-noise ratio will degrade as, as it does in an analogue situation. This is if, if it's correctly dithered. Absolutely. If it's correctly dithered and the gain computations are done properly, then there's, there's no extra distortion coming on. You can... You know, you can record signals down at minus 120 even on a 16-bit system, and there's no distortion there if it's done properly. Um, you know, if you go back 10 or 20 years, you can find examples where it wasn't done properly, and I think the legacy of that has carried on, and it's now become a bit of a myth that, that you can't do it. But I've not found anything in the last 5 or 10 years that, that doesn't do the maths properly in that situation. Hmm. I certainly like to use an analog controller myself. Partly it's practical because it can sit on the desktop where you can get to it. And they've quite often got facilities that the hardware interface doesn't have, such as uh, the ability to switch to mono, a couple of different headphone mixes on the output, source selection, speaker selection. Usually that's quite limited on the interfaces themselves. Yeah, it's true. On, on most interfaces, you've literally just got an output marked monitor out and a volume control, and that's about it. And then you're relying on your software to do the, the mono summing and all those kind of things. Um, so I'm like you. I've got a, a, an analog controller on my desk, and I rely on that. And the other advantage of that actually is that the one I have, the um, the muting control is right on the output. So if you hit mute, it, it short basically it shorts the signal to the speakers 
uh, to ground and that way you can turn off the rest of the system without sending nasty splats to the monitors, uh, which I find useful on occasions. Our final question relates to mixing where the reader asks, how do I get a produced vocal sound? If I just add reverb and maybe a bit of compression to my vocals, the parts don't sound like they do on records. Well, we could talk for hours about this here, couldn't we? But I'll let you kick that one off. Uh, well, let's start at the beginning then. The, probably the most important part is the performance itself. Um, a, a produced sound starts with a very, very good performance and it's worth spending the, the time and the effort in getting that performance right. And also that performance has to be in an acoustically neutral space. Of course, if you've got a boxy room and you start to add compression, as we've explained on many occasions, that boxiness is only increased. So the dreaded duvet needs to come out of the cupboard or off the bed and get hung up behind you so that you can get that performance nice and clean in the first place. Without that, you're pretty much lost, aren't you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then there's the whole the microphone thing um, and how you uh, perform to the microphone, how close you are to the microphone. That affects the, the kind of timbre of the voice you get. Um, and a lot of people will record something with an inappropriate microphone or a microphone placed poorly and you get a very sibilant sound that you're then fighting through the rest of the chain to deal with, that kind of thing. Or you're very close to um, a cardioid microphone that has a proximity effect and, and any slight movements of the performer in and out uh, of the microphone will change the bass response and, and change the tonality, which again you're fighting later on. Um, so those things you need to, to address at the beginning because otherwise you're always fighting the problem through the rest of the chain. Yes, if you can get a mic that suits your voice, then you'll need less EQ at the mixing stage and it'll sound more natural. Yeah, that's very true. And, and we've done features in the magazine before about um, finding a microphone that suits a voice. Uh, you know, the world's most expensive microphone will not suit every voice, and that's just a plain fact. And we've done lots of things before where, in, in the case of, of some people's voices, a very cheap microphone actually gave a much better, more usable result than a very expensive microphone. Which happens to be the one I'm recording this podcast through at the moment. Oh, yes, yeah, so it is, an AT2020, one of our favourites. Um, there was somebody on the Sound on Sound forum the other day um, who was saying that um, they'd use some quite expensive studio, you know, big diaphragm studio microphones, and had very unsatisfactory results from it. And they were using a stage mic, a, a Sennheiser stage mic, um, which which gave them the quality of, of sound that they were expecting. And part of that was just because the, the quite strong presence peak that you get in a lot of stage mics happened to complement the tonality of his voice very well and helped to bring through um, harmonics and elements in his voice that the flat microphones just weren't delivering. Yes, that's true. That's where the art comes in and the science gets elbowed out a little bit because the science will always tell you that the mic with the best specification is the best microphone, whereas your ears will tell you the one that sounds most musical is the best microphone. Yeah, exactly that. So uh, once we've got a, a good, clean recording in a very uh, neutral but dead space um, and a good performance, then you can start thinking about the way you process it. And probably compression is the thing we ought to talk about first. Yes, although a lot of people use a compressor as the only tool to level out a vocal. And uh, as we've discovered, if you've used the automation that every door now has to take out some of the more severe dips and peaks in the vocal level, then the compressor is going to have an easier job. Yes. Um, when people perform, it's it's not uncommon that the dynamic range of their voice is, is actually quite wide, particularly if it's if it's the kind of song which has fairly laid-back verses and a, maybe a more powerful chorus or something like that. You've got quite a wide dynamic range to have to record. And if you try and deal with that whole dynamic range in a single compressor, you could be asking this compressor to put in 15 or 20 dBs of compression on the loudest bits and virtually nothing on the quietest bits. And compressors inevitably change the, the sound of the voice. So having expecting one compressor to do it all in one go is just too much. If you can ride the level of the vocal, vocal that's feeding into the compressor, 
you can ease some of the burden, if you like, by pulling the fader down. You can do that either manually, as, as people used to do in days of old, or you can do it with automation um, in your door, mm. or you can do it by altering the clip levels or whatever you want. Um, and also, if you do a little bit of compression on the way in, perhaps, and then do more compression later on as part of the mix process, that often helps as well. Use different compressors and use them more subtly than one compressor trying to do the whole thing in one go. That's very true. I quite often use the Waves Vocal Rider plugin, which is almost like a lazy man's way of writing automation. So it looks at the levels and it moves a little fader around to try and even things out. Uh, the only tip I'd give if you're using that is to put in your EQ first with a low cut filter in place because if you've got any popping noises or anything that's close to popping, the increased level of that is going to make the thing turn down the vocal more than it needs to be turned down. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And the same with compressors. They can easily get fooled by popping. Yes, very much so. Um, putting a um, high-pass filter in the sidechain often helps in that respect. Something else that's, that's sometimes uh, interesting and can cause issues occasionally is that um, a vocal recording, if you look at the waveform, often it's asymmetrical. Um, quite often you'll see there's more energy in the positive half of the waveform than there is in the negative half. And that's quite normal and quite natural, and it's just the way it is. But it can sometimes fool compressors because, depending on the way the sidechain is designed, sometimes you find it's reacting um, more strongly to uh, strong positive peaks uh, that are there, and of course the negative ones aren't. So it ends up um, squashing signals harder than they really need to be squashed. Um, if you use a phase rotator, there are lots of plugins that are phase rotators. Um, they alter the phase relationships between the fundamentals and the harmonics, and that has a, uh, the benefit of, of making the waveform more symmetrical. And often that allows you to get more level out of your compressor than you might otherwise be able to do. That's good advice. And of course, if you think about the way we produce voice, it, it's, it's pretty obvious that it's going to be asymmetrical because we only make sounds as a rule by forcing out air, not by bringing in air. And any kind of plosive is, is a burst of air coming outwards. You don't get many uh, inward going plosives. Yeah, that's right. It's, if, it's not a DC offset because a, a DC offset is, is something that happens inside the electronics domain or the digital domain. But if you like, it's a kind of DC bias on the air pressure that comes out of our mouth. We're breathing out all the time. So positive going wave fronts tend to have more energy behind them than negative going ones. And of course, once we've got all that sorted out, the levels are great. And we've done a little tweaking on the EQ to make it sit in with the rest of the backing track, maybe added a little 8 or 10 kilohertz air boost to give it some clarity, then you've got to start thinking about the processing. And in the old days, it was always, let's stick some plate reverb on it and we're done. But of course, it's rather more to it than that now. Oh, I don't know. I just still stick plate reverb on and we're done. <laughs> <laughs> if you look at a lot of contemporary music production techniques, and I'm sure that Hugh explores these as well, uh, you'll quite often find that reverbs combined with delay, and it's not just any old delay, it's usually a delay with the top rolled off a little bit so that it sits behind. It's very important that treatments sit behind the vocal and don't cloud it. If you've got really bright treatments, uh, bright delays, bright reverbs and a bright vocal, it's, it all gets rather messy, doesn't it? Yeah, it was, it was a fashion in the 80s, wasn't it? Um, and those sort of George Michael albums that had the ridiculously bright, fizzy reverbs on the front. Um, thankfully, it died in the 80s fairly, fairly quickly. Um, but yes, uh, I think with reverbs... Uh, it is a fashionable thing, and it depends on the genre you're working in. But I don't find normal reverbs particularly helpful with vocals. Plate reverbs work well because they're 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 kind of anodyne in a way. Um, but something that has a lot of strong early reflections, I find works better than general reverb. So strong early reflections and a fairly subdued and low-level tail works better. Um, and little delays, uh, rhythmic delays perhaps, that just sit quite low in the mix, but you notice them if they're missing often just helps to bed the whole thing together nicely. 
Yes, it's important to evaluate these things with the whole mix playing, of course, because if you just solo the vocal track, it can quite often sound very over-processed. Yes. Um, but as soon as you put the mix back in, all these things tend to get diluted, which brings you to another point, that if you come to uh, a part in the song where the background music sort of falls in level dramatically or, or an a cappella section, you might need to automate the level of effects because then they'll suddenly be exposed and may sound like you've got too much on there. Yeah, and you might want to vary the effects and have different effects in the chorus than you do in the verses and that kind of thing. That's absolutely true because the human ear just gets very bored if things are the same all the way through, which is why a lot of producers will use a completely different treatment in the chorus and maybe even add extra vocals, layer them towards the end of the song because songs are supposed to kind of build towards a climax as a rule. Yeah, sure. Perhaps we ought to talk a little bit about um, double tracking and chorusing effects as well. Yeah, of course, double tracking was originally done just by singing the same piece twice onto another track, where you'd always get very slight timing and pitching differences that gives a very natural sound. Uh, since then, people started to try and fake it, first of all with a tape machine with a very short delay between the record and the playback head, which gave you a slapback effect, but it was not really double tracking. However, it did become part of the musical lexicon and so still gets used. In uh, more recent times, we've got plugins that try and fake it in a more subtle way. They can put in little pitch shifts and they can put in little delays which are more random, and uh, Antares do a few of these. But my own personal favourite way of faking it, if you can't get the singer to sing the same thing twice, is to uh, simply use a pitch correction plugin on a copied track and then delay that by somewhere between 50 and 100 milliseconds. And then the combination of the delays and the slight pitch differences give you quite an authentic double tracking sound it's quite yes, rich it, it works very well you've, you've done this at some of the seminars and things we've done and it really is a, a powerful effect and very simple to to knock up quickly and i think what you get is the the original recording has the natural um inflections of the voice the way that the pitch varies slightly over time and the pitch corrected version is much more heavily bolted down and so the the just the juxtaposition between the two is what gives you that sense of, of two or more people singing at the same time. And it just works in a very convincing way. And of course, the other trick um, you can do is you can put really hard pitch correction on the uh, reverb sense so that the reverb is almost spot on in tune, almost artificially so. But the original vocal is not really treated at all other than small tweaks to correct any obvious tuning problems. And that can give a very rich sound without giving the game away. Mm, clever, yeah. Well, that's all we have time for this month, so it's goodbye from me, and it's goodbye from Hugh. Goodbye, thanks for listening.